Uh, our scripture passage this morning, if you want to follow along with me in a Bible, uh, in the Pew Bible, uh, it's there in front of you. I think we usually tell you what page it's on. I don't see it um, here this morning, but uh, in, in your own Bible or in the worship folder that was given to you, or that will also be on the screen behind me, comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's yet another parable. Uh, dealing with the theme of self-righteousness. And so let's read these, these words this morning together. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He told also this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Really, it's the sinner. To tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. So this is the third time that Luke has put before us a contrast between a sinner and a self-righteous person in his gospel. He did it in the famous parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, which we looked at two weeks ago. He did it again in Luke chapter 7 in the story of the dinner party with the sinful woman who is there uh, washing Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping it with her hair, and then then the self-righteous man Simon. And here again, with this Pharisee and this tax collector, okay, three times. In all three of these stories, it's interesting, are unique to Luke's gospel. In other words, they don't occur in Matthew, Mark, or John. And so Luke obviously has a bone to pick here, doesn't he? There's something intentional he's trying to do for us here. And so we might ask the question, why? Why does Luke seem so intent on Uh, following this similar pattern over and over and over again in these stories he tells us. And I think there really are two reasons. One is to offer an explanation, and the other is to teach a lesson. And so he's doing this to first explain what's happening in Jesus' ministry. Why, as the Gospels are told, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and so forth are streaming to Jesus and are coming in and and are really, uh, you know, Jesus is eating dinner with them and all of these things, and they're, they're being received and welcomed and embraced and celebrated while the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the, you know, the, the very upright and moral members of society are being put off by all that, that's happening there. And so it's, Luke's trying to explain uh, through these stories why it is that Jesus' ministry had that look to it, but he's also wanting to teach us a lesson, and the lesson is that the greatest obstacle to entering Jesus' kingdom, the greatest barrier, please hear me, to eternal life is not sin but self-righteousness. At the end of the prodigal son story, it's the younger brother, the immoral brother, who is at the father's house at the feast. And the older brother, his moral brother, is still outside and won't come in. Do you remember? Because the younger brother repents and the older brother doesn't. At the end of the story of the dinner party last week that we looked at together in Luke 7, It is the sinful woman who is forgiven and not Simon. And and that's that's the truth that that Luke keeps returning to over and over again. And here, uh, even more straightforwardly, at the end of this parable, if you look in verse 14, it is 
the tax collector who goes home justified and not the Pharisee. And that word is the word for salvation. It means to be approved. It means to be accepted. Okay, and so the, 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 what, what we're being taught here is that the sinful tax collector is made right with God while the self-righteous Pharisee is not. And I've heard stories, okay, if you want an illustration, I'm hearing, I'm hearing I guess it's time for college acceptance letters to be coming, and so I know there are kids in our church who've begun to get these acceptance letters, and isn't it a great feeling? I mean, I remember the day those started to roll in my mailbox, too. You get these letters, and they're written in this nice, you know, font on this beautiful paper, and, the, and basically it's, you've met all the qualifications, you've done all the work, you've passed all the tests, you're in, you're accepted, come, we want you, come be with us. That's a good feeling, isn't it? And that's that word justified. And so there's a huge lesson here for us, that it's the tax collector and not the Pharisee who, who, has, that, who has that reality stamped upon their life. And the lesson really is summarized there in verse 14, isn't it? At the very, very end, in the summary statement. Okay, the summary statement there at the very end, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if you think you've got it altogether, if you think you've got what it takes, you don't. But if you're a complete mess, if you're a complete and utter mess, that's where you find spiritual power. If you confess your sins... No sin is a match for God's grace, but if you do all the right things and act like you have no sin, then you miss out on the kingdom. Or you can even say, there's a, there's a reality uh, that I think this taps into in our, our experience of sanctification, that actually, the better you get, you, become, you know, Jesus really is making us better and better people, but the better you get, the inverse reality of that is you really begin to feel worse and worse and worse and worse, because you're made aware of more of your sin. Okay, so the, the humble are the ones that are be exalted. Those that exalt themselves, who live in pride and a superiority complex and looking down their noses upon other people, those are the ones who find themselves on the outside. That's the reality of the kingdom that Luke is laboring so hard to help us to understand because there really are weighty, weighty things at stake here. And again this morning, we look at this from this text. And here's what I want you to see. He's really set it up as a contrast, hasn't he? There's the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so we're just going to walk through the passage and really look at the contrast between those two men uh, in, in these three, under these three headings, okay? And they're the three points of the outline that I gave to you. I want you to see they, they really illustrate two different approaches to God. First, which lead to two different postures before God, which result in two different results with God. And so that's really the contrast that Luke is laying out for us. Two different approaches to God in these two men that lead to two different postures before God that ultimately end in two different results with him, with God, okay? So let's, let's walk together through this passage just using, using that kind of rubric. Okay, first, the first lesson, these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they illustrate two different approaches to God. So the parable begins there, verse 10. Would you look with me? Two men went up into the temple to pray, and prayer there in that verse means, the, the scholars tell us, a, a corporate religious experience. We think of prayer, we think of kind of a private thing that we do when nobody else is around, but very clearly there it would have referred to the corporate worship service, so to speak, of, of the Jewish people at this time. So the scene is this. In Judaism in this day, there was a morning and an evening sacrifice, which were worship services. Okay, so the going up there is the biblical language for approaching God in worship, uh, but we're going to use it a little more broadly, and we're going to say that their different approaches to worship illustrate two different ways of approaching God just in life, two different strategies 
for relating to God. What the Bible would say is that we need, we need a righteousness. That's that word justified. We need a righteousness, okay? And these two men illustrate different strategies, two different strategies for getting the righteousness that we need. So let's begin with the Pharisee. Let's look at him for just a minute. He illustrates the people in the crowd that we're told there, verse 9, that Jesus is addressing in this parable. Do you realize that? I was talking to some people this week. And sometimes we go right to the parable, and we don't realize a lot of these parables that were given here were occasioned by very specific circumstances. And this one was too. We see there in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. And the Pharisee is the, the illustration of these people. And so the first strategy for getting the righteousness that we need then is to think like these people did, like this Pharisee did, that it comes from me, that it comes from inside. This Pharisee was a good man. He himself tells us this, doesn't he? He wants us to make sure that we know it. He says he fasts twice a week and he tithes all that he has. And, and, and everybody's in agreement that what he's really saying there is he, he went above and beyond. This man wasn't just religious, he was super religious. Because the Bible said that the people of God should fast once a year. Pharisees thought, you know, that's not quite enough, so let's do it once a week. Because that's what Pharisees did. This guy said, you know what, once a week really isn't enough, let's do it twice a week. Anybody in for that, by the way? Anybody want to join me in that? I didn't think so. Twice a week. And then the tithe was kind of a generalized sense of give a tenth. This guy is the guy that goes around and was making sure he gave a tenth of every single little thing in his life uh, to God. He was a super, super, super duper religious person. And it's because he believed in salvation by good works, by being good. The basis of his relationship with God was his good works. How do we know this? Well, we know first from history that Pharisees were a sect within Judaism known for their meticulous obedience to the law of Moses. They were the rule followers. They even added rules and suggestions of their own on top of the rules. They loved rules so much because they believed that righteousness came from the inside. That righteousness is something you do for God and then after the doing of it, you give it to God as a gift and as an offering, so to speak. And if he's pleased, then he will reward you with salvation. Now, from the text, we see this too. Now, notice this prayer. He appeals to his good works, doesn't he? Do you see that? Isn't that interesting? He approaches God with resume in hand. He says, here are my credentials. Here are my credentials because he believes that God answers the prayers of the righteous because they are righteous. So if you do good, you get good from God. If you do bad, you get bad from him. Or we could say it, if you do good, you deserve good from God, and if you do bad, you deserve bad from God. This is his worldview, but we don't have to go very far in this, do we, before we begin to realize something's very wrong here. Something really stinks, doesn't it? Notice his prayer. We teach our kids to pray through the ACTS, adore, confess, give thanks, supplication at the end. Well, here there's no adore, there's no adoring of God at all, is there? There's no confession. I mean, he hasn't done anything wrong. He has no sin that he's bringing before the Lord. There's no thanksgiving. I mean, he starts to say, I thank you, God, but basically it's really great, isn't it? I thank you, God, that I'm so awesome. <laughs> That's what he prays, right? 
And there's no intercession. There's no petition. He doesn't need anything, okay? Something's really wrong, really wrong, really wrong here. This is the worst prayer in the history of praying. I mean, it's not really a prayer at all. It's an advertisement. And it's not just his prayers. What I would have you see is that all of his morality is self-advertisement. It's not about God. It's not about loving and helping other people. It's all about him. And isn't this what Jesus warned about when he talked about the Pharisees in Matthew 6? That they, he said, be careful to be like them because they give their alms. They literally would go into the marketplace and they would give their tithes and they would sound trumpets as they gave their tithes so that everybody could watch them do it. He said, be careful of praying to be seen by others and fasting to draw attention to yourselves and impress people by announcing maybe in public how often you do it. trying to impress people with all of your good works. And so here we see the problem. And the problem with this guy and the problem with self-righteousness in general is that his righteousness is just a disguise for selfishness. It's really sin just wrapped in really pretty wrapping paper. See, if you consciously or unconsciously base your relationship with God upon your good works, like this man... If you think that righteousness comes from the inside, that it's something you have to do, uh, then your solution for sin is your good works. That's the strategy. And if that's the strategy, then what happens is, is your whole life becomes a massive PR campaign. And that's the problem. And it's a problem for a couple of reasons. For one, it's completely dishonest. Because we all know, don't we? There's lots of spin in image, image management. I mean, in your spiritual life, it's dangerous to do this because it fails to recognize the, under, the ugly underbelly of much of our do-gooding. That much of the time, we're not motivated by God's glory or love for others. I mean, these are pe- I'm talking to people who've been in the church for a long, long time. We do good for bad reasons a lot of the time, sinful reasons. We do it to get power over God so that we can control Him and force Him to give us the things that we think we deserve. We, we do it to get power over people so we can manipulate them and look down upon them and make them feel horrible and puff ourselves up. You see, PR campaigns only show the good. They never show the bad because they're trying to persuade the audience to buy the product or whatever the case might be, but it's dishonest and spiritually it's very dangerous. There's a second reason why this is not a good strategy and it's not just because PR campaigns don't work in the spiritual realm, but it can very easily degrade into externalism. And Richard Lovelace, who was a seminary professor uh, a number of years ago, really captures this Phariseeism well. He has a book. Um, he has a couple of books, and I would recommend both of them to you. But I, I have a quote I want to read from him, and I think it's going to be on the screen behind me. Josh, is that right? And here's what he says. I just wanted you to, get, to be able to read along with, with this. This is so powerful for me. Richard Lovelace says, since many church members have an understanding of justification that is marginal or unreal, anchored not in Christ but to some conversion experience in the past or to to an imagined present state of goodness in their lives, they know little of the dynamic of justification. Remember, that's what this passage is about, that word justification down there at the end. So he says of these people, their understanding of sin focuses on behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by a little willpower And it ignores the great submerged continents of pride, 
covetousness and hostility between the, beneath the surface. So if you want an, an analogy, use, use an iceberg. I think an iceberg is a helpful analogy. And we know that the part of the iceberg that you see above the surface of the water is about only 10% of the total mass. The other 90% of the iceberg, what did the Titanic in? Okay? Was not, was not the part that you could see above the water. It was the 90% of the mass of the iceberg hidden beneath the surface of the water. And notice this Pharisee. He doesn't, it's, very, it's very, very shocking, but it's very, I mean, it's very real here. Notice he doesn't, when he prays to God, he doesn't say, I thank you, God, that I'm becoming more patient. I thank you, God, that I'm becoming more joyful, that I'm more peaceful. You see, his understanding of sin and virtue is completely oriented to external behavior, to keeping and breaking rules. And the problem with that is that he is ignoring, and he's like in this spiritual sleep, and he's unaware of and completely blind to, and ignoring submerged continents of pride and unbelief in his life. And that's his problem. Now, what about the tax collector? His approach to God is much different. He, too, goes up to pray, but unlike the Pharisee, he doesn't come with a resume in hand. <laughs> if righteousness is what he does, if it comes from the inside, then, then he realizes he has no chance. He has one hope, that God is merciful. And so you notice there, he doesn't appeal to his good works. And the reason he doesn't appeal to his good works is because he doesn't have any. He appeals to God's grace. Look at verse 13. Be merciful to me, he says, a sinner. Really, in the Greek, it's the sinner. Not a sinner comparative to other people, the sinner. The only one, the big one. We're told there, verse 13, he beats his breast, which is a very demonstrative display for a Jewish man that signified extreme anguish and sorrow. There's only one other place in the whole Bible where we see this gesture happen, and it's at the cross. But there's important symbolism in what he does there. He um, he beats his chest right here. And, of course, what's right underneath where he's beating himself? His heart. As if to say, this heart of mine is the problem in my life, and if I could reach in and rip it out, I would, but I can't. And so I just beat it because he recognizes the truth of the Scriptures that out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, theft, slander, and so forth. He is not content only to look at the surface of his life, but he knows that hidden beneath the externals is what Genesis 6 says, that every intention of the heart is only evil continually. And so you see, he knows the solution for his sins cannot be his good works, because his good works are just as tainted by the evil within him as his bad works are. He needs a new heart. That's what he needs, that unless he gets a new heart... Any good works he might try to do would be polluted by the evil inside of him. So there must be another solution for his sin. There must be a righteousness apart from his record that comes from the outside, not something that he has to produce from the inside. And so he cries out there, verse 13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that translation, unfortunately, is is horrible. It's not helpful at all because the words there are very specific. That word there that he, that's translated mercy, have mercy, be merciful to me, it really means God atone for me. Or, if you want to use a big fancy, God propitiate my sin is what he's saying. It's the same word that Jonathan read in Romans 3.25 when he said, you know, he talked about Jesus' work, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
Now remember, this is probably the morning or the evening sacrifice, one or the other. And, and, and what's happening at the morning and the evening sacrifice is there's this whole this, this worship service and there's this liturgy that's being played out in front of everybody. The priest is bringing out a lamb to put on the altar to be killed in the place of the people. And he lays his hand on the lamb's head and confesses his sin and the sin of the people over it, signifying that God has promised to transfer their guilt to the substitute. And then he slashes the lamb's throat and the blood begins to flow and spurt and all of that right there in front of everybody. The atoning sacrifice has been made. The lamb's blood has been shed instead of the worshipers. And in the middle of all of that, the Pharisee stands up and says, I thank you that I'm not like all these really bad people here. Can you believe that? But not this tax collector. In the middle of all of that, the tax collector in deep remorse strikes his chest and he says, God, God, let that be for me. Atone for my sins, which are many. That is the death that I deserve. But be merciful and accept the sacrifice instead of me. You see, the point that Luke is making is that's the difference between being religious and being a Christian. And can I tell you, there's a difference. And it's the burden of my heart to help us see the difference. And the difference is that a religious person believes and acts as if the solution to their sin is their good works. But the Christian believes and acts as if the solution to, to sin is God's mercy and the sacrifice. And in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down the road and he proclaims, Behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. The Lamb to which all other lambs that were slain in the temple pointed towards. And according to the prophet, God laid our sins upon him and he died to give us life. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness. There's the word. The righteousness of God in him. Two men. One came to God on the basis of his own merit. The other came to God on the basis of his mercy. One believed that righteousness comes from within. It's what you do and then give it to God as a gift. The other desperately hoping that righteousness comes from the outside, that it is what God does and then gives as a gift. So two very different approaches to God. Now we'll be much quicker from here. But second, I want you to see these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, illustrate two different postures before God. Their approaches to God create very different postures. And so let's look again at the Pharisee. We've said that the problem with him was that he was extremely diligent to follow all the rules. And yet he was ignorant of the submerged continents of pride and selfishness in his own heart. And you can see his pride in the way he postures himself. Look there in verse 11. It really comes out in the story. He stands by himself away from the crowd and specifically away from the tax collector. I mean, this word Pharisee meant set apart. And for the most part, these men who bore that title lived up to their name. He doesn't want to rub up against the wrong kind of people because he believed that he would be defiled by coming in contact with people who were not quite as diligent in following the law as he is. And so this is a gesture here of superiority and condescension. We know this also because of the way he begins to target. I mean, look, he targets the tax collector. He starts to pray. I mean, this is really gross, but I want you to see, uh, I want you to see in what he does what we all do to one another all the time. He targets this man. Uh, in his prayer, which, as we've already said, really isn't in a prayer. It's a sermon. And isn't that gross? Have you ever done that? Have you ever, like, needed to discipline your kids, and then you throw piety in there, and you pray, but when you're prayer, you're really, like, preaching a sermon to them, but you're praying? Okay, just me. I, y'all make me feel alone all the time. I just want you to know that, okay? 
I do that. And it's gross. But that's what he does too. The commentators notice that he chooses words that specifically apply to this man. I thank you, God, he says, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, or even like this tax collector. And that word extortioner means robber. The unjust refers to dishonest gain, and that was the reputation of tax collectors that they'd earned for themselves. They were liars and thieves. So the Pharisee is publicly shaming the tax collector in the name of prayer. He singles him out. It's very aggressive. And this is the contempt that Luke highlights in the introduction to the parable. Remember, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, how do people who believe that live towards other people? They treat others with contempt. And so the Pharisee's religious success has made him proud, and his pride makes him look down on everybody else. There's a bite to people like this. Their superiority complex really comes across in impatience, in tone, There's a harshness, there's a shortness with people, there's an edge, there's just an edge all the time. There's no softness, no gentleness. I mentioned earlier Richard Lovelace's book. It was so helpful to me, it helped me understand Christians in a time when I was ready to walk away from Christianity, to be honest with you, because so many of the Christians I knew, including myself, acted so unchristian. And the answer that he gave... In that book, that many, you know, that really helped me is that many of the people who call themselves Christians aren't Christians. They're just moral. And if they've succeeded at being moral, the problem is, is that success usually sours into self righteousness. And self righteousness manifests itself in what he describes as, listen to this, he says, a compulsive, floating hostility towards others that focuses upon others in critical judgment. A compulsive, floating, I mean, it's not even specific, it's just everywhere. A compulsive, compulsive, floating hostility that focuses upon others in critical judgment. Man, that, that was me, and that was the people uh, that I knew that called themselves Christian years ago. And it's the Pharisee in this parable, and it also captures the experience that many people have had with the church. You know, Lord have mercy. C.S. Lewis said that if your religion makes you feel better than other people, if it leads to pride that causes you to look down upon others, then you can be sure that you're being acted on, but it's not God that's acting on you. He goes on to say that the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether, which is the best thing to do, or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. And that's the tax collector, isn't it? He has a very different posture than the Pharisee. And it's a picture of every person who's had a genuine encounter with the God of the Bible. This tax collector, we're told, verse 13, stood far off, but for very different reasons. The Pharisee stood apart because of his pride. This tax collector stands apart because of his humility. He stood afar off, we're told, and would not even lift his eyes to heaven. See, he's broken by his sin. His moral failure has made him humble, and humility helps you love. Humility is the handmaiden of love. Now, this isn't in the text, but taking the last three weeks together, we can say... You know, the problem with this Pharisee is that he's looking down upon other people. And you can't look down upon other people and love them. The older brother in the parable of the prodigal son and Simon and this Pharisee here, all of them felt morally superior to the counterparts that, that, that in, their, in their story, but they had no compassion. They felt superior but had no compassion. And what Luke is saying is that is a sign. To feel superior and to have no compassion upon other people who are struggling in sin is a sure sign that you're not yet a Christian. Because compassion comes from humility. 
And you can't, you know, and, and Lewis said, if there's no, there's no Christianity without humility. He said, if all you ever do is look down on others, then of course you're not looking up to God. But faith, the very act of faith is looking up. Conversion is the time in your life when you stop looking down at everybody else and you start looking up. And this tax collector, he peeks up to heaven. It's just a peek, doesn't he? He can barely bring his eyes to look up to God, and, but yet he peeks. And that's enough. And here's the thing. When in faith you realize that in God you come up against something which is in every respect superior to you, when you look up, then you can never look down on anybody ever again. Isn't that the argument Paul makes in Romans 3? That the gospel is the end of boasting? The Pharisee in our story is boasting of his righteousness, but the righteousness you need is not yours. It was the work of another given to you as a gift. That's what Christianity teaches. And if that's true, then, then, then there, we, there can be no boast. You can't feel morally superior to others and treat them with contempt. You know, and stake your life on grace. You can't. You can't feel morally superior and treat others with contempt and stake your life upon grace. I mean, Martin Luther, in his gospel discovery that prompted the, the Protestant Reformation, he was very clear to make the point, there's no middle ground. You're either trusting in yourself for righteousness or you're trusting in God. There's no mushy middle. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. And so, you know, we need to be a people who are constantly rooting out the unbelief. And if you want to be rooting out the unbelief in your life, where you start? You start with your boasting and your contempt. But there's a third thing we need to, we need to wrap up. And the third thing is, is that the Pharisee and the tax collector illustrate not only two different approaches to God, which result in two different postures before God, but their posture before God ends in very different results with God. And this time, let's look at the tax collector first. The tax collector, we're told, verses 13 and 14, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's what Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified and not the other. So two men went down to pray, but only one came up from praying justified, made right with God. And it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, and that is scary. But why? Why is it that the tax collector, not the Pharisee, the one who, why is he the one that goes home justified? And it's because the Pharisee thought he was righteous, the tax collector knew he was not. And the only way to get the righteousness you need is to know you don't have it. It has to come from the outside. It has to be an alien righteousness. Or to use theological terminology, because I think it's helpful, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, goes home justified because passive righteousness, not active righteousness, in other words, what's done for you, not what you do, is the righteousness that saves. If you look at verse 14, all of the verbs, justified, humbled, exalted, all of those verbs are in the passive tense. The action is not your action. And the lesson is that in order to get passive righteousness, you have to have no active righteousness. But what about the Pharisee? See, the tax collector goes home justified, but what about him? And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has a teaching that explains what happens to the Pharisee in this parable. He says that on that day, and he means the day of judgment. This is in Matthew 7. He says, on the day of judgment, on the day when God's final verdict will come down, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That sounds very much like the Pharisee's prayer, doesn't it? The spiritual resume? And yet we're told there in Matthew 7 that Jesus will say, I will declare to them on that day, I never knew you. Jesus says, if your case for your salvation is built on evidence of your moral superiority, of all the great things that you did for God, it won't work. 
And the people there, like this Pharisee, appeal to their moral record. They say, did we not? Did we not do this and this? Did we not? And Jesus will say to them, you don't get it. Because you see, on the day of judgment, there's only one plea with any power to save, and it is not, did I not do this? Did I not do that? Did I not do so-and-so? The only plea that has any power to save is, Lord, did you not? Did you not, Lord Jesus, come into the world to save sinners? Did you not live a perfect life, perfect submission to the will of your Father, so that all who believe in you might be counted righteous? Jesus, did you not suffer and die in my place? Did you not bear the wrath of God that was mine to bear? Did you not suffer the hell that was mine to suffer? And Jesus, did you not rise on the third day so that I might rise with you into newness of life? That is the faith that saves. That's the plea that saves. I mentioned Martin Luther. One of his best hymns, uh, there's a line in one of, one of, I forget the name of the hymn at the moment, I didn't write it down, but one of the lines in the hymns, and I would just close with this. This is, this is, if you want to know what the movement of faith looks like, what this passage is teaching us, here are Luther's words in this hymn. He says, To wash away the crimson stain, grace, grace alone availeth. Our works, alas, are all in vain, and much the best life faileth. No man can glory in thy sight. All must alike confess thy might, and live alone by mercy. It's the Pharisee, I mean, excuse me, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who lives alone by mercy, and therefore it is the tax collector and not the Pharisee who goes home justified. May we heed the story and apply it to our own lives with wisdom. So let's pray. Father, in these last few moments that we have to be together this morning, would you lead us And repentance and faith, those are gifts that you give to us, and so we plead for them, but repentance and turning away from the spirit of the Pharisee in this parable, the gift of faith that we would turn towards the posture and the spirit of this tax collector who has but one cry, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me. Atone for my sins. Would you lead us to repenting of all of the good works that we are trusting in to get us a record by which we can gain the things from you or from others that we think we need and want? And would you lead us towards faith and broken, contrite, humble acknowledgement of the submerged continents of pride and selfishness and sin in our lives, looking to you only? Would you lead us towards repentance of looking down upon others, and would you lead us to faith that we might stop looking down and start looking up, and in you find everything that we need for life and godliness. That is what is before us in these moments, and so even as we sing these songs, come and work by your Spirit in us to that end, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the promise, excuse me, the the exhortation, let me say, of this passage is um, that the gospel, the, the overriding feature of the gospel in a person's life is uh, that it brings them to a place of humility. The promises is that the words of this benediction and the promises of, uh, you know, that God makes to us in these words are promises that are only made to the humble. It's the humble that are exalted. It, God opposes the proud, the Bible says, but he exalts the humble. And so uh, if the good work of the gospel in your life is to bring you to the place of humility then here are the words that meet you at that place to make promises to you that God will go to work for all those who know they need him uh, in powerful ways. And so receive 
uh, these words and the promise of this benediction and go in peace uh, to love and to serve. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.